0: Well, when your Bible's to Colossians chapter 3, just sitting there thinking about uh, what I'm about to do, preaching, and my mind went back to a funny Father's Day story that John MacArthur told years ago about one of his children coming to him, and he was praying with him. This was his youngest son, I believe. He said, Dad... um, he said, I, I, was, I was thinking, you know, when, when, when you're in the pulpit, um, you're pretty special. John said, I thought, you know, that makes me feel pretty good, he said. But he finished the, the sentence, and he said, but, but the rest of the time, you're not that special at all. <laughs> MacArthur used that as, a, as an analogy for what actually happens whenever someone's preaching. Um, just a human being. Flesh and and bone, flesh and blood, nothing special about them at all. And yet, when they open up this book, the the word of the the living God that speaks of the one true God and his son and shares the gospel, shares who he is and what he is, there's something supernatural that, that, that takes place. There is a there's an empowerment that, that, that happens uh, in the person and, and in, the, in the event. God inhabits it in, in some way because he wants to be known and he wants you to, to know him. And so that's how I feel the, the, this morning, not very special at all. And yet in this moment, when I get to open the word of God, um, invincible because there's a God that I speak about that is that, that way. And I can think of no better passage to cover uh, than this one because it explicitly portrays our heavenly father while encouraging us to become like his son. Um, if you know my testimony, you know that I did not begin life in ministry. I came to Christ at the age of 24, and, and prior to that, I was in the business world, and the Lord completely redirect my Re- redirected my path. I still run into people periodically that know me from high school or college, and and I have to pick their their jaw up off the floor when I tell them what I do with my with my life now. But when we were in business, uh, our company had what was called a horizontal corporate structure, which just meant we maintained core services, specifically the executive functions, and then we we contracted out to other service companies. Uh, uh, for things that could be done more efficiently, uh, usually cheaper or better somewhere else. And one of those servicing companies was our major partner, and, and because of that, we purchased space in the same building that that they were in. And so our employees and their employees were were mingled together, so mingled together that if you came in from the outside, you could not tell one company from the the others, I mean, the other, the, 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 the employees shared the same office space. We ate lunch with, with, with each other. And for the most part, we even followed uh, the same employee policies, which included something called Dress Down Friday. Do you remember those days? I mean, to now we work from home in our pajamas, but there used to be a time where you had to dress up whenever you went in to work. And so everybody liked. Dress down Friday, where you, you got to be casual. It usually included blue jeans, which was the favorite of all the employees. And so everything was bumping along nicely until we hired a new CEO. And one of the first things that he did whenever he came in was he wanted to distinguish us from the other organization. And he did that by changing our dress code. He did away with dress down Fridays and required all of the staff to wear suits. We were the executives, and so that was a mandate every, every day of the week. And, and he said things like, we are professionals, and we should dress like it. Or one of my favorite lines, he would repeat, was there is a reason people dress professionally at a bank. Nobody feels comfortable handing over their money to someone dressed in a Conway Twitty t-shirt and flip-flops. With this change, though, people could immediately tell the difference between these these two companies, even though they inhabited the the same space. We still shared the same building and lunchroom, but there was a clear distinction by by looking at us. And the Bible does not have a position on dress down Fridays, but it does have something to say about your spiritual dress I don't mean your physical clothing, but I mean your, your attitudes that adorn your heart and the actions that garnish your, your, your life. And as Christians, we are to dress ourselves with the manners and the movements of our Savior, the, the Lord Jesus. In these characteristics, His characteristics will distinguish us, should distinguish us, from others around us. And God says, just like it was with the example of those two companies, that people should be able to observe. They should be able to tell a difference between us as followers of Jesus Christ and, uh, and the world. And Paul will show us how that takes place, encourage us to, 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 to excel the more in, in this spiritual dress in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through, through 14. Now, if you haven't been with us, we're in the book of Romans, and we've come through Romans chapter 6 up through verse 14, and we've now turned to this parallel passage in Colossians uh, to help us apply it. Um, The theology of Romans 6 was all about our glorious union with Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith, and now we're we're in Christ. We're in union with Him. We've died with Him, and we've been raised to live a new life in, in Him. And and the marching orders then, then followed. If that's taken place, because that's taken place, we're not to yield our members to sin any longer, but, but to God, who, uh, as those alive from the dead. And so Colossians 3 is helping us. It's showing us how to work that out practically in, in everyday life through this, this principle called biblical replacement. We're to, we're to put off and we're to, to put on. The deeds and the desires of what we were before we came to Jesus Christ must be mortified. They must be put off like a, like a dirty shirt. And the, the virtues of the new life in, in, in Christ must be, must be now put on like a white and clean garment. And we just finished working through what we're to put off in Colossians 3, 5 through 11. And we're continuing to look at what we're to put on today in verses 12 through through fourteen, the passage that Colin read for us to, today. We, we said last time it's important to remember that, that Paul puts both of these things to, to together. It's not just stop doing things; it's also start doing other things. So, so these are biblical replacements, and I think you're going to see how this other list parallels what we're to put off and and how that how that fits perfectly together. If if you don't understand. These these things go together. You're, you're not going to be successful. I mean, even the unbelieving world understands the principle of of replacement. Uh, weight loss programs have meal replacements, or smoking cessation, or you you stop uh, trying to chew tobacco. You need lemon drops, or fake snuff, or herb uh, sunflower seeds, or something. Of course, that doesn't always work because it doesn't have the power of God operating within it. But the principle's right. It takes both putting off. In putting on. You have to put off the, off the vices of the old man and put on the virtues of the, of the new man. Or as Hebrews 12 tells us, we're to lay aside the weights and the sins which doth so easily beset us, and we're to, we're to look unto Jesus. Uh, we're to run with patience the race in front of us, looking unto, unto Jesus. And that's what Paul lays out here in Colossians chapter 3. He said it starts with new thinking, In verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in in God. And then it moves to application. Verse 5, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, but put off these sinful behaviors. And he gives us a list, immorality, impurity, passion, inordinate desire, covetousness, or greed. The second list that you're to put off, anger, wrath, and malice. We We looked at that. Those are the heart attitudes. And then um, the slander, abusive speech, and lying, which is how the heart expresses itself. And then in verse 11, the last one, social divisions. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There's no superiority by heritage, circumcised nor uncircumcised, no superiority by piety, barbarian or Scythian, no superiority by, by your way of life or slave or free. There's there is none from relations in status or honor or, or wealth. And all of that's followed by what, what we're to, to put on. And the divisions in verses 12 through 14 are, are easy to see. Look at verse 12. There's a reminder of our new position. He says, so as those, those, you, what are you? You have been chosen of God, holy and, and beloved. So, so there's a reminder of our new position. It's what we looked at last time. And then there's a call to clothe yourself with five virtues. As someone like that, you're to put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and and patience. And that's followed by a separate call to, to bear with one another and forgive. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. It's all about the Lord so also should, should you. And finally, this call to love, verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is like an overcoat, which cinches everything together, which is the perfect bond of unity. It holds all those other virtues together and enables this whole list to work, work seamlessly. We, we're calling it four seams of a believer's Christ-like garment. Well, you're now to put on as a, as a Christian, we have a reminder of our special position, a command to uh, adorn ourselves with a specific pattern, a call to follow a selfless practice, to forbear and forgive, and then there's an instruction to practice this perfecting bond, which is, which is love. And we covered number one last time, you're the chosen of God, that's the declaration of your new identity. You're now holy unto the Lord, and the basis of that is you you were beloved. So before Paul ever gives us a command about what we're to put on, he gives us a motivation. There are three. Spur us along. He does that by describing our our new identity. This is who you are as, as this new person in Christ Jesus. Whatever you were before, this is what you are now. Chosen people, holy people, beloved people and these three descriptions we said are the standard way of of designating designating Israel in the Old Testament and and now the church in the in the New Testament it's a, it's identical to Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through, through eight this tripart description is how God describes Israel for you are a holy people to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people from his for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Why did he choose you? Because the Lord loved you, you were beloved. And he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. So Paul says believers who are in Christ now hold this special position as as well. And as you understand this special position, that's what motivates you to to now adorn yourself with this new specific pattern. The second seam in in a believer's garment is to adorn yourself with a specific pattern. And Paul gives us five virtues here, and they're contrasting virtues. I want to show you how these virtues match up with what you're supposed to put off. And they're also Christ-like attributes. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ is described in the Bible. You would to verse 12 again. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and, and patience. So Paul says, not only are you a special people in Christ... But as such, you're to adorn yourself with, with his likeness. Where we were once told to put off what we were before, we're, we're now told to put on these specific, these five specific virtues. You ever wondered what, what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian? What, what's a Christian supposed to be? Someone ever asked you, what, what is a Christian? Well, uh, somebody goes to church, reads their Bible praise every day. I mean, those things are found in Scripture. But I think this list really gets closer to, to the heart. We're to put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. You're being renewed into, in, in, into His image. Or, or you could reverse that. When you're not identified with, with these things, when you're not identified with a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, you're not very Christian. And the word put on here is an imperative, like like it was before. It's a command. So because this has happened in Christ, you're in union with Him, now you're commanded to do something. You're commanded to pursue something. You can't die to sin or raise to walk in new life. That has been done because you're in Christ. Here's what you are commanded to do. As someone who's now come to Christ, you're you're to sink into this clothing. You're to be arrayed with with something. In particular, this this list, this this word that's found here, put put on, is actually where the, the word back in verse eight, put off or put aside, gets its meaning. The word back in verse eight is just a general term to to lay aside, but, but but this word is a specific word that has to do with putting on a garment. And the word looks like what Mr Rogers did at the start of every one of his shows. He came in and took off his suit jacket and his dress shoes while he sang, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And then he slipped into his comfy sweater and his tennis shoes and then he taught little little children. It's like, here's a change. Uh, this is what I was doing outside my house. This is what I'm doing now inside. And Paul says that's what we're to do here. We're to, we're to slip into the attributes that that should be as comfortable as as Mr. Roger Sweater, because you're, you're changed. And this new command follows the same pattern as that, that paradigm in the Old Testament. God's chosen holy and beloved people are people who were identified with him. Look at the very next verse after we, we, we read Colossians about how God chose them out of the world. Look at the very next verse. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Therefore, just like Paul here, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the the judgments of of the Lord, which I'm commanding you to do today. Therefore, because you are chosen and holy and beloved, therefore you to keep the commandments. And Israel was set apart as God's people by God's grace and His choice, but, but she's now to become like Him. The commandments of the law were to distinguish Israel from all of the other nations. I mean, why don't eat, why, why have certain linen garments and you can't eat shrimp and you've got to go here and you do all these things? It was to distinguish Israel as God's specific people. The commandments of the law were to distinguish Israel, and Israel took on those commandments which made them different. And Paul is saying in the same way, we too are to be distinguished from the world. We're to put on these Christ-like garments. Do you see a lot of of, of compassion and kindness and and forbearing with one another and forgiving one another going on in the world? No, but sadly, sometimes you don't see that in the church. And that's a shame. It's a blot upon the, the testimony of Christ. Jesus simplifies it this way in John 13. Under the New Covenant. Remember, Deuteronomy, Exodus is under the the Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant. That's what Jesus says, how that works out in the New Covenant. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. You'll be distinguished from everyone else if you have love for one another. So in the, in the New Covenant, not the Mosaic one, will not be known by the external distinctions of the law or ceremony. All of those things are shadows that have passed away. They're, they're not distinguishing us from the, from, as God's people from the unbelieving world, but, but by love that comes from our hearts. That's what will distinguish us where the, the law is now written, which is... Probably why Paul ends this list the way he does in verse 13, above all these things, put on love. And you say, well, what is love? I mean, that's kind of nebulous. That's kind of fuzzy. Well, we'll we'll come back to this list of five virtues, and you'll find something to sink your teeth into. That's where Paul ends, but before he gets there, he lists out these these five virtues that you're to pursue. And there's a reason that he does that, Two, two reasons, in fact. And the first is that these things are exact opposites of the five vices that you find in verses 5 through 9 that that we're to to put off. Um, Look at uh, verse verse 9, or verse 8, I should say. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. Why? Since you've laid aside the old self with its easy, e- evil practices. And verse 10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed in the true knowledge. What does that self look like? Verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Not, not, not um, uh, anger, wrath, and, and malice. not bitterness, but, but a heart of compassion and kindness. It's an intentional parallel. Anger, wrath, and malice are hard attitudes. And they're to be replaced by a heart of compassion and and kindness. That's the cure for a bitter and angry heart, compassion and kindness. Now, remember the context here. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to believers. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have any ability to do this or even a desire to do this. You want everybody to be that way to you, but it's fine to be angry and wrathful and malice. You need a heart change. You need a new engine. Once you get this new engine, though, this is what you're commanded to, to do. Christians aren't to be angry and wrathful and malicious. We're to, be, we're to replace those things with a heart of compassion and, and, and kindness. Slander, abusive speech, and lying. That's how the heart, uh, unbelieving heart expresses itself. It's how your, your flesh still wants to act sometimes. That's to be substituted by humility and gentleness. And when you're and when you're not acting with humility and gentleness, you're not being very Christian. That's what comes out of you. Instead of biting words as a believer, humble words, a gentle spirit, racial and social prejudices that come from a variety of differences in verse eleven, circumcised and uncircumcised, and slave or free. That's to be exchanged with patience, forbearing with with one another we bear the differences of others. God doesn't say he erases the differences. There are all kinds of differences, male and female, and differences in, in status in life, and rich and poor, and all those things. Jesus says, you always have the poor with you. <clears throat> he doesn't erase any of those things, but he says you're not to focus on them. They're meaningless in, in, in Christianity. It's Christ who is all and, and, and in all, and so you forbear with those differences. That's what a Christian does, with the differences. Don't rise up and attack. And so this list complements one another. We're people who have put on a new, new identity, and we're not who we were. We are now associated with Jesus Christ as his follower, and because of that, we're to cultivate a life that, that's like his. I mean, what does it look like to put on Christ? Well, Colossians gives the answer right here with these five virtues. But the second reason that Paul chooses this list and doesn't just say love like Jesus does, is this list, specifically, describes our Savior. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but the specific characteristics in this list are all used in the Bible to define Jesus Christ. I mean, these words are how Jesus is described in Scripture. He has a heart of compassion, doesn't he? He's humble. He's kind. He's gentle. He's patient. Of course, there are plenty of other places in the Bible that remind us that he's also a consuming fire, so he's not to be trifled with. But when God wanted to, to reveal himself, he came in the person of Christ. and Christ displayed God. And, and so before we get to what we're commanded to do, think about what this says about your Savior. I mean, these virtues are associated with him. This is what he's like. Isabella and I were talking the other night. She came to me with her Bible and was asking some questions about revelation. Some questions that I told her I have those questions too, and I can't wait to ask God for the answer when I get to heaven. But during that conversation, she she said, Daddy, what's God really like? I'm sure you've thought of that before. I said, well, in some ways, he's more glorious and, and... and more good than you could ever imagine or comprehend. When The Bible has, says things like, eyes not seen, nor ears heard, nor thought has entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. and Eternal life is you get God. That's the gospel. You get Him, not a place. I said, if you want to know what God is like, then, then, then read this book. God loved you so much that He gave us a Bible. He gave you a Bible so that we would know what He's like. And along with this book, so that we would know what he's like, he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, the written word teaches us about the the living word. That's true for you as well. I mean, if you want to know what God is like, you can read this book, and you can look at Jesus. Think about how many people spend their lives thinking that they know God, pontificating about God, about who He is, even when you try to share with them what Scripture says, what God says Himself, they'll say, no, He's not like this, or I wouldn't believe in a God like that. What's He like? You can read this book. He tells you exactly what He's like, who He is. And you can look at Jesus. Jesus describes Himself in the Bible. Jesus said and did a lot of things during His ministry You might think of the I am statements of John. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall go in and out and find unpastured. I'm the light of the world. I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the light. There's one particular place in the Bible where Jesus, in his own words, describes what he's like. He describes himself to us. He kind of opens his jacket and lets us see his heart. And and the words may shock you because he he doesn't say, I am holy, 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 although he is. He doesn't say I'm perfect or just. Uh, I'm the powerful creator. He's all those things. It's found in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here it is. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, this is what I am like. I am gentle, and I am humble in heart. Both of those terms are terms of a servant. Gentle means kind and approachable. Humble in heart means lowly. And you picture someone serving. Now think of that. I am gentle and humble in heart. And he also says, if if you come to me, I'll give you rest for your souls. When you think of God, what, what image comes to your mind? Angry, standoffish, approachable only if you do the the right thing. I don't try to take any biblical representation uh, away from you from you. God is angry with the wicked on a daily basis. His wrath will come upon an unbelieving world. It's what sinners deserve. But but Jesus tells you what should come to your mind first, right here. What is he like? What is God like? He is gentle. He's humble, and he's kind. Unless you think that Jesus said something new, or now the God of the New Testament is not like the God of the Old Testament, all Christ is doing right here is repeating exactly what the Father, what God of the Old Testament said about himself in Exodus 33. Turn with me back to Exodus 33. It's worth going there. Exodus 33. You want to know what God is like? Read read the Bible. Read what God says about himself. What does God say about himself? Well, what Jesus says in Matthew is just an echo of what God has said from the beginning. Exodus 33 and 34 is God's response to Moses. We'll begin reading verse 12 of Exodus 33. This is God's response to Moses after he's brought the children of Israel out and the the Ten Commandments and they've broken them and God's going to replace the the two commandments, the two tablets. This is God's response to Moses when when Moses asks God if he can see his glory. It's one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. Because God, again, reveals Himself. He says some things about Himself. Look at verse 12. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you, you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, key, so that you may find favor, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, Mrs. Moses, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Not just me, but your people. Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And the Lord answers Moses in in verse 17. Look at verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing which you have spoken For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Moses makes another somewhat shocking request. Look at verse 18. I don't know what he's thinking. I'm on a roll here. I'm going to go for the whole ball of wax. And then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. See, God's glory means a clear representation of who he is. Moses says, show me who you are. Show me more. Let me see you fully and clearly, all of you. Show me your glory. John Piper, in his sermon on Isaiah 6, does such a good job explaining glory. I've never forgotten it. Isaiah 6, 3, the angels around the, the throne cry out, holy, holy, holy. The Lord God all Lord, Lord, is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. Holiness is God's uniqueness to He is. He's completely unique, three times unique. Holy, 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 meaning there is no one like the Lord. And then the angels say, the whole earth is full of His glory. And Piper says you would expect him to say the whole earth is full of His holiness. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His holiness, but it says the whole earth is full of His glory. Piper said that's because God's glory is His holiness, God's uniqueness, who God is, gone public. God's glory is His holiness gone public. God's glory is an expression of of who He is. And so when the Bible says that you're to to do all for the glory of God or you're to live for the glory of God, it means that you live to put who God is on display. You live your life in a way that that you you display Christ, you display God. And and so when Moses asks to see God's glory, he's asking God to show him who He is. And look at how God answers Moses in verse 19. Verse 19 of Exodus 33. And he said, That's the Lord. I make my I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is who God is. I'll proclaim it before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And God says no one can look upon my fullness and, and, and live. No, no human being can fully take God in in flesh and blood. He, he's so unique and so glorious we cannot consume all of him without being without being being consumed by him. And so he tells Moses, I'll give you a glimpse. I'll, I'll give you a glimpse of what you see, but then I'll proclaim my name to you. I, I will allow my glory, the public display of my holiness to pass by, and then you can see its fumes. You, you can see the wake in the water, some commentators have, have said. It's like the fragrance that remains in the room after someone with the most satisfying perfume departs. Moses, in your sinful human state, you cannot look upon who I am, but I will allow you to see who I am by showing you my works and by proclaiming my words and in the same way we, we can see who God is by His works and by hearing His words, the heavens declare the glory of God. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. The, the gospel changes people. The, the love of Christ is in our hearts, sweetens us, and sweetens our life. And that's what God is like. His works. He's good and powerful. You, you can see Him in in creation. Creation shows us that. He's powerful. He's good. He gave you taste buds. Taste buds with all different types of abilities so that you can taste things that are sweet and sour and and you can enjoy the Father's Day dinner that you're about to enjoy. He's truthful and he's stabilizing. He's provided the the church of the living God to to uphold truth in a world that's completely lost at sea and falling apart he's the hope of sinners transforming them people who have no hope whatsoever on their own and know it know they're bankrupt their sin has overtaken them he can transform them change them into new people new creatures he's the one who loves you when when no one else will and no one else would and when no one else should but the scene doesn't stop there look at exodus 34 Because he says, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. He passed by and Moses saw something, but Moses has to hear something still. What is God going to say about himself? Verse 34, chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. He's renewing the covenant. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Can you imagine that? No one shall come up with you, but let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone Here's the covenant renewed. The significance now is not what Moses sees with his eyes, but what he hears with his ears. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Here's the other half of what he promised Moses. So God comes shrouded in a cloud and he speaks with a clear voice. What does God say about himself whenever he speaks? Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. This is the first time in the Bible where God proclaims who He is. These are God's own words about Himself. Not what you imagine, not what I tell you, not what you read or hear. What is God's like? Uh, what, what is God like? Who, who is He? When He is he's made known, what, what does He lead with when He describes Himself? What is what's God's front foot forward? What, what does God put at the top of His resume? What does He want you and everyone else to know first and foremost about Him? There are plenty of other things to know, but what, what does He want you to, to know first and foremost? Well, that He's a covenant-making and keeping God. The Lord, the Lord, those are capital letters in, in your Bible. That's the name Yahweh. That's the, that's the covenant name. That's what he leads with. Who is he? Let me tell you who I am, Moses. You want to see my glory? Here's my glory. I'm a covenant-making and keeping God. Moses asked earlier at the burning bush, when, when whom shall I tell the children of Israel? Sent me. And God answered, tell them, I am. Tell them I am the one who is. But then he says in the very next verse, God further said, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, that's this word, capital already The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. What displays God's glory? chooses a people out of the world and he makes a covenant with them and that covenant is unbreakable it's based on him and him alone the god of the covenant that's who sent you because i am their god and they're my people and this covenant making and keeping god is gracious he's compassionate he's merciful he's kind what does that look like it looks like he's slow to anger Or to use Peter's words, he's he's long-suffering, he's he's patient. He's not desiring any to perish. He's slow to anger, he's abounding. Think of this, slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, in covenant love and, and, and faithfulness. You notice anything similar about these words? You should. The exact same thing that Jesus summarizes in Matthew 11 when he says, I'm gentle and lowly. I'm slow to anger. I abound in steadfast love and and He gives rest to any soul who comes to Him. The Lord here, He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's forgiving the sins of thousands and forgiving thousands of sins. You think, have you ever thought how many sins God has forgiven in your life in particular? Sins that you don't even know that you've committed? And you think of, how many sins, the sins of everyone who has come to God for forgiveness, collectively, how many sins God's forgiven? How many sins do you have? God says He can forgive all of them if you'll come to Him. It's not just sin, falling short of God's glory, the arrow failing to hit the, hit the target, it, but transgressions, He says here. It, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and and sin, transgressions. God forgives that when, when you do exactly what you know is wrong. There's a line in the sand and you just don't care. And that don't care is the iniquity, the rebellion and desire in your heart that wants to do it to begin with. God doesn't just, you're just not, you're just, I've just made mistakes. God forgives mistakes. But God also says you're a transgressor. You step over his law, and you step on him, and you don't care. And he forgives that transgression and iniquity as well. That's what God is like. That the God that comes to your mind whenever you hear the name Jesus, you know this God? I don't mean know of him. I mean, do you know him personally? If you do, then this is how he deals with you and how he has dealt with you. He's compassionate and kind. Whenever you came to him with a basket full of your sins in a mess and you, 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 you fell at his feet and they dumped out on the floor before him, he picks them up and he covers them in his blood and throws them behind the cross. He's long-suffering and merciful. And if that is the way he was with you, then these are the attributes that you're to put on as his followers. You're to put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. Do you see now how what Paul is saying here, how it makes perfect sense? If these are the attributes of your master, then these are the attributes that that you should imitate. You see how, how, how it can't just be a list of religious exercises? like circumcision or baptism or keeping certain dress or dates. It has to be transformed attributes that come from someone who's experienced the same thing. You can't love others without God loving you. This is genuine Christianity. This is what distinguishes genuine Christianity from the world, not ceremony or convictions this is what you now have the power to become because you've died with Christ and because you've been raised to, to live in this new life. And, and that true reflection is why God has left you here and didn't just take you to heaven. Why, Lord? Take me to heaven. Save me and take me to heaven. Now I'm going to leave you here so other people will know who I am by my works and my words because you're going to do my works and you're going to speak my words because you've experienced both of those things. It's, it's what an unbelieving world needs to see in order to grasp God. It, it's to be a witness. That's what it means to be a witness. You know how many gods there are in the world? I didn't count them, but there are thousands of them. Probably you couldn't count them. If you ran into a group of people that no one has ever met, no one even knows they exist in a jungle somewhere, they'd have new gods. There are thousands of gods because man doesn't really know the, who the one true and living God is, so he creates false gods in his own image. Some of those gods are vengeful and punish people's enemies because people feel helpless to do, any, to do anything themselves. I mean, some are wise, know the mysteries of life, that, that's what characterizes them because people feel limited by the boundaries of their own understanding and some of these false gods are, are kind and non-judgmental because people are aware of their guilt, but they can't stop sinning. Some of these gods are carnal because people want to do their sin. They love their sin, and they want a God who approves it. What is God really like? This is what He's like. And Jesus reveals God to us. John 1.14 says, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now think of that in light of Exodus 34 and Moses' request and what God says to Moses. And John says the same glory Moses couldn't look upon is fully manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, still robed in human flesh. One day you'll see it with the eyes that are not your human eyes, You'll see it without him without any limitations. But he was full of grace and and truth. And you can see him and hear from him in the Bible. He's the feast giver who invites the poor and the crippled and the lame. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's the groom who eagerly waiting comes for the bride. He's the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one lost sheep. He's the woman who searches diligently for the single coin. He's the prodigal's father who shamelessly runs to meet his belligerent and sinful son. He's the merry-making host who leads the re- leaves the rest of his family and servants for a joyful celebration over the lost son. He's the son who came to, to serve rather than be served. He's the savior who came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's the restoring master who seeks Peter out after his fall, prepares a meal for him and recommissions him three times, in the, the same number as his denial. He's the prophet Hosea who keeps his covenant to an adulterous wife when she is cast aside by her lover. He purchases her from the slave market, covers her nakedness, brings her home, bathes her, and dresses her in the finest clothing. But Exodus 34 says he's a God not to be trifled with. He will in no wise allow the guilty to mean to go unpunished. They you have to come to Christ. I'll close with this. I remember my pastor telling about how he learned what God was like it relates to Father's Day. He said he didn't have a very good earthly father, Pastor Joe. You still see his face telling the story. He said his father was a drunk and a mean one. He would work away from home, Every Friday, he would come home drunk, and whenever he would come home drunk, he would beat his mother. One weekend, he came home that way, and the normal melee that, that ensued, his mother accidentally shot him as they wrestled over a gun. He had a gun, and somehow it got in the middle of the, the fight. And he said he didn't have much of an earthly father, but, but someone invited him to a Good News Club meeting on Thursday night and told him about a heavenly father who was completely different from his earthly one. And this father loved him so much that he didn't get drunk and come home and beat him and the kids. This father loved him so much that, that he gave his only son to die for him so that when Joe, Pastor Joe, died, Joe could be in heaven with him. And his heavenly father would never beat him or be mean. In fact... His heavenly father would never leave him or forsake him because he was gentle and compassionate and and kind. And he said that night he met that father by turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I've never been the same. And he used to say, I don't know anything. I don't know about your, your family, if you even have one, or your background or your upbringing. But I can tell you that there's a father in heaven who loves you And if you'll come to His Son, Jesus Christ, He'll wash you clean from all of your sins and He'll give you a new life. I wonder this morning, you ever met that Father? You can today. Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But... Well, in no wise, in no way, we have be guilty unpunished. And so he punished his son in your place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are not special, but you are. We are special in the sense that you set your love upon us. So many thoughts that we have that are from us, so many ideas from the world, and yet you show us plainly who you are, who your son is. You're gentle and lowly, and you will give rest to anyone who will come. You'll transform us and change us. You won't leave us as we are. You'll you'll then give us things to do, like putting off the old ways and putting on new ones so that we might then... Show other people how to find this same merciful Father that's found us. Help us to do that, Lord, as Christians. And if there's anyone who's never met you, I pray today would be the day that you will have opened their eyes and that they would bow the knee after running for a long time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.